Hello, hello, and welcome to today's episode of Saddest Night Out. My name is Roy, and I am the host of this daily podcast, and it's primarily about music and creative culture in London. And I have another announcement to make. It's been a while since I've made one of these, but there is a show Sunday, 13th of October, at the Stag's Head in Hoxton. And the lineup of this show might have some familiar names Kin Soul, Rose White and Jack, Haley Solace, and Johanna. They are all artists that I have worked with in the past on my shows, and most of them have been on the podcast before, so I'm very excited to see them all on the same lineup. That is Sunday, 13th of October at the Stag's Head in Hoxton. It's £5 entry, doors open at 6pm. I'll be there, they'll be there, and I'd love it if some of you were there as well. Today's episode is another retrospective. I don't know if that's the right term, but it's another personal history episode, basically. And by the way, these episodes where it's much more me talking about a specific subject and how it affected me, these episodes are very much inspired by a podcaster and radio personality in general called Alan Cross. He has a podcast called The Ongoing History of New Music. And first of all, he has one of the best voices I've ever heard on a podcast. But he has an excellent way of giving you an in-depth overview of whatever topic he's talking about. Recently, he talked about the history of Dave Grohl and really went deep on it on subject because Dave Grohl was the drummer of Nirvana. So he's been talked about a lot in the past. But Alan Cross managed to go deeper and always does so in a way that's enthralling, whether you're familiar with the subject or you're not. And that's what I'm trying to tap into when I do these episodes. I'm trying to talk about specific subjects, how they affect me, and I hope I can bring them across in a way that will interest people, whether they are familiar with the subject themselves or they're not. Hopefully you can see where I'm going with it. And the subject of today's episode is a band that I have found myself obsessed with, and I really do mean obsessed. They are called The 1975 So this episode will be a little bit similar to the episode I did about the Strokes a while back. But I want to be a bit more succinct with this one, largely because time is of the essence. I've got some work I need to do for my music, so I can't be on this episode for too long. I am back at Caffrey Studios, so you might hear the gentle rumble of a train overhead. Hopefully that's not too distracting. So, like the episode with the Strokes, I start with the introduction that is on the Wikipedia page. These episodes aren't meant to be an encyclopedic and complete history of whatever I'm talking about. It's more what I've taken away from it. If you want a more in-depth history on whatever subject it is, Wikipedia, Google, etc. are your friends. So, according to Wikipedia... Let's just see how they introduced the 1975. The 1975 are an English pop rock band originally formed in 2002 in Wilmslow, Cheshire. Now based in Manchester, the band consists of lead vocalist and rhythm guitarist Matthew Healy, lead guitarist Adam Han, bassist Ross MacDonald and drummer George Daniel. So, yeah, four-piece band. Two guitars, drum and bass, sound familiar because that's exactly what I'm doing. They've been a band since 2002 and they released their first album in 2013. So what I try to do here is write down five points in particular that have really struck me about this band. And the connecting thread between all of them is that from the off they were ambitious This was a band that really had their sights set on the big time. And there's a real stereotype with indie rock, 
where artists it's not cool to want to be the biggest band you a lot of times you'll see artist bands talk about what they do as if they, oh I just so happen to be in a band there's a bit of a shrug intended in what they say but not with the 1975 they knew exactly where their sights were set and they've worked towards it ever since so in many interviews Matty Healy the singer has talked about how they've been a band since they were 13 they didn't release anything until 2012 as the 1975 so in that time they had a few different band names they had a few changes in their style and eventually arrived at the style that they have or the style they had anyway they still have for their debut album. And their debut album, which is self-titled, The 1975. In fact, the first track on the first album is The 1975. So if anyone remembers seeing music videos on TV back on MTV or something, where you'd see the small blurb in the corner that told you the title of the, the song, the artist, and the album, it would be The 1975 by The 1975 from the album the 1975. I'm going to be saying the 1975 a lot on this episode. I hope you're all okay with that. So they were previously called The Big Sleep, Drive Like I Do, Talk House, and eventually arrived on the name The 1975. And I think, forgive me if I'm incorrect here, but when talking to their lawyer about being called The 1975, or someone in their legal team, or just someone they were working with in a more management capacity, they said there's never been a band that's gotten big whose name is mainly made up of numbers. And when they heard that, particularly when Matty heard that, that was like giving a red rag to a bull. It was, okay, now it's almost as if you're daring us to take this name because you said there's never been a band that's gotten big. We never said we were going to get big, but now that you've said that, we're that much more determined. He got 1975 tattooed on him, and thus it was that that became the name. They describe their album as very 80s, very John Hughes soundtrack inspired. Before they released the first album, they released four EPs, and each EP was somewhat centred around a single from the album. The first e- the EPs came out in 2012, the album came out September 2013. There's Face Down, Sex, Music for Cars, and IV, or 4, in Roman numerals. There is a website called setlist.fm and on that website you can search for an artist and it will tell you as much as it can the setlist for as many of their shows as have been uploaded. So with the 1975 you can see they played a ton of shows in 2012 and 2013 and you can see the setlist for those shows. There were a handful of songs that they must have played goodness knows hundreds of times at least before releasing the album, and some of those songs they still play now. I really get the impression that from the once they had a name and they seemed to really hit on what they were going for, they were a well-oiled machine determined to put in the work and put in the hours because they knew it would pay off in the long run. So the first point from them is that they started young and stayed together through many stylistic changes which is not an easy task. It's very easy for people to say, yeah, we should make music, we should get together. But once you look at the nuts and bolts of we have to be at this place at this time and you need to bring your drum kit or you bring your amp, etc. Well, there once might have been a million people look excited about the idea. You'll quickly get down to maybe 100,000 just from the, the logistical obstacles that can get in the way of physically getting together to play music. So to do that for a decade and to stay together through the different changes and to actually see it through, that's an incredible 
commitment to the cause there. The second point I had is that they had a wealth of material from an early stage, which helped build a relationship with the fans. Before the album, they released those four EPs, and they've said themselves that each EP had a single from the album. The album was written before the EPs. And for anyone that doesn't know, an EP is a, is a term that means extended play. It's basically longer than a single, longer than one song, but shorter than an album. It's just a smaller collection of music. Each of those EPs, I think they've said, and again, forgive me if I'm wrong here, nothing here is meant to be the absolute Bible truth. I'm trying to be factual, but I admit I might be incorrect in some areas. They wrote each EP within a week of releasing it. So they might have had the one song for each EP. So for Face Down, it was The City. For Sex, it was a song called Sex. For Music for Cards, it was the song Chocolate. And then for IV or Four, it was The City, but the album version. So they had a song, but they wrote the rest of the songs for each EP in a short space of time. That shows me they had a great work ethic and they had a good system in place for arriving at an idea and seeing it through. It's typically Matty, the singer, who writes the lyrics and comes up with the melodies and vocals in general, and the drummer, George, who will be behind most of the production. The two of them seem to be the main songwriting forces just in general both taking up different parts. And of course, their bassist and guitarist, Adam, who plays guitar, and Ross, who plays bass, play their parts as well. But it sounds like they had a good, almost like a factory system in place to be able to churn out so much material. And when they arrived, I think deliberately, they were at odds with the status quo. They came across, there was a lot of black and white imagery, quite dour, quite a downcast, but when you heard the music, it was it sounded really poppy, very 80s, as I said earlier. And I think they weren't exactly critical darlings with that first album. In fact, NME magazine, back when it was a magazine, voted them the worst band of the year one year. But then by their second album, they were voted best band of the year. So they stuck to their original vision. And it helped that they, one, played a lot of shows, which again, as well as being able to churn out material... They were clearly good to, you know, get in the van, get to the next venue and deliver the next show and on to the next thing. They just knew what they were in for. But they also had a commitment to the vision they're trying to bring across. And the fact they put out so much material, the fact they played so many shows, it helped to essentially hold their audience by the hand and guide them into the world they were presenting. Because as the band, they knew the world they were presenting wasn't familiar. It was... There were familiar elements to it, but the way it was packaged was a bit unfamiliar and perhaps a bit unsettling, hence the negative reviews for their earlier work. But they knew it was worthwhile, and they knew if they kept putting stuff out, there'd be more for their audience to sink their teeth into, more for their audience to want to, to make their audience want to commit to this band. And they were, they were headlining and selling out pretty large venues before their first album. So clearly, that's a method that worked. Next, yes, so they started young and stayed together. Sorry, had a slight interruption there. So where was I? They started young and stayed together through many stylistic changes. They had a wealth of material from an early stage, which helped build their relationship with their fans. They weren't well received by critics at the start, and that's largely because what they had to offer was at odds with the status quo. They had and they had and continued to have an excellent visual brand 
from the start. Remember how I said earlier that the connecting thread with all of this was how ambitious they were from the start. They had the name the 1975 and they have a box logo. It's a rectangle, which might not sound like much when I describe it just there, but when you see it with the band on stage or in their artwork, it it really resonates. And Matty, the singer, who, as well as them playing a ton of shows, which you can see on setlist.fm, I've got a YouTube playlist with, I think, at least over 100, I can't even remember how many, videos that are largely just videos of Matty in interviews. Because, again, they were willing to put in the work. They tried to get signed, but no one would sign them. So eventually they a manager discovered them, a manager by the name of Jamie Oborn, who is an, a very integral piece of this entire story. They started a label together around the 1975 so they could really focus on doing things their way. And part of trying to break something new is to do as much press as possible. Just get the message out every chance you get. And I have this YouTube playlist with, I'm, I can't remember how many videos, I think maybe 150 videos, just Matty in interviews. Because again, he knew the importance of just getting out there and getting the message out there. They are ambitious, both in the music they made, the shows they played, the the press they were willing to do, and in their branding. They knew from the start that having an image, I think Matthias said it, and I think he quoted Slash from Guns N' Roses, that if you can be recognised in silhouette, then you are truly iconic. The fact they were thinking this way, again, the ambition, the goals were there. They have the box logo, and their lighting at their shows, as well as their artwork, is... You can tell these, this is a band made up of fans of this avenue, this this artistic platform. Because when you see what they've created, you can tell they're thinking about what they do from the fans' perspective. And they're thinking, what would be the best way to mesmerise and really intoxicate our fans with our art? It's not so much about what makes most sense financially or what do other bands do. It's more, no, if I was a fan, what would I love to see a band do? And that's what they do. I highly encourage anyone listening to this to search the 1975, by the way, that's the 1975, Vivo 02. They played a headline show in the 02 for their second album, which is called I Like It When You Sleep, For You Are So Beautiful Yet So Unaware Of It. Again, this is a band that's very much towing their own line walking their own path. First album, it maybe flew at odds with the status quo. By second album, they were all the way in. They thought, no, no, the more we stick to this, the better. The live show for that album is immense. The whole stage is essentially part of the light show. And I I can't really do it justice by describing it. I just highly encourage you to check out their live show at the O2. To date, they have three albums. The self-titled first album, the 1975. Second album is I Like It When You Sleep, For You Are So Beautiful Yet So Unaware Of It. And third album, A Brief Inquiry Into Online Relationships. They have a fourth album around the corner called Notes on a Conditional Form. And people have been... To say they've been highly anticipating it is really an understatement. But from the start, just to get back to my point, I'm getting sidetracked here... Excellent visual brand from the start. Lights at the live show, the band name, font, you can look at. And the fans have picked up on this and appreciated it. They've had slightly different fonts 
for each stage of their career, showing their evolution stylistically. Even the way they post on social media, they have this thing where they'll put a space between each letter. Again, it just marks them out as a as a brand, as something separate from everything else that's going on. And of course, the box logo. I don't know if many... I think bands should think about this type of stuff. I don't think it's seen as, I don't know, cool or the thing to do. I think there is still an element of, oh, we just get together and, you know, strum our guitars and whatever happens, happens. But this is a band who feel as though they sat down and thought, no, how can we make this as effective as possible? And then there's the fact that they, in the many, many interviews that Matty has done, there are a few phrases that come up quite a lot. There is, we started this band when we were 13, we feel unmoored by genre, the imagery is quite dour, and one of my favourites, they create in the way that they consume. He's talked about having a bit of a magpie attitude to what he makes. He'll just pick the shiniest parts from wherever and merge them into their own thing. So they'll have heavier, more rock-orientated songs. They'll have some real synth-sounding dance songs. They'll have a gospel choir. They'll have a saxophone. They'll have ambience pieces in their albums. They are all too happy to run the gamut in what styles of music that they do. Now, there's a lot to admire, a lot to take lessons from, a lot to feel inspired by when it comes to this band. And then there are some things that I don't dislike about what they do, but I know that's not what I would do. I'm a fan of this band almost in the way that sports fans are fans of their teams. Yes, there's the music I enjoy, but there's, it's almost as if the more success I see them attain, the more I feel, yes, that's right, You know when a football fan sees their team win and it feels like you personally have won, even though you were nowhere near the pitch? That's almost how I feel when I see the 1975. The more they win, the more I feel in some sense as if I've won as well. There aren't many other bands, I don't think there's any other bands that make me feel that way as the 1975 do, just as if I'm personally invested in their success. And a part of it, as delusional as it may sound, is that I too want... That's... That is the goalpost I'm reaching for to achieve that level of success. This is a band who headlined and sold out Madison Square Garden, which is a huge venue in the US, in New York. Sold out the O2 in London, another huge venue, with their second album. So clearly, they were right to double down, to bet on themselves, because it paid off. But there are some things they do that I just know I wouldn't do. Just personally, taste-wise... They were very sure about what they were doing, as I am about what I'm doing. So, pardon me. First, is that they'll tend to use backing tracks, or as I call it, invisible band members. Now, their band members aren't actually invisible. They've got a backup, like, guitarist, synth player, backing vocalist named Jamie. I think Jamie Squire is his name. He's an amazing singer, by the way. Really talented guy. And they've got a saxophonist and also, I think, synth player and general instrumentalist as well, named John Woff. And they've been touring with the band for quite a while. I think most recently... Yeah, so those two have been with the band when they perform live. And there'll be certain samples that are triggered or backing tracks that are triggered. And it all adds to their live show. It's very much their decision and it absolutely works. But with my music, I am very much about the four musicians you see on stage. Unless they are physically playing something, you won't hear it. There's also the fact that they go in many different directions with many different genres within one album. 
Whereas I am more inclined to go into different directions with different albums. Another artist that I'm a huge fan of is a band called Chromatics, who've also just released a new album called Close to Grey, and who are also playing in London in October, which I'm really looking forward to seeing. Their band I'm a big fan of, I've mentioned The Strokes before, and these are artists, and Discovery by Daft Punk is another album I love. And with each of these artists, at least with the works that I'm most familiar with and most fond of, they are driving down the same road from start to finish. They're in the same constraints instrumentally, stylistically. Yeah, just every song seems to align to a certain direction, a certain just aesthetic they're trying to put across. And that's what I am more inclined to do with my work. There'll be different genres and different directions across the entire discography or body of work, but within each individual element, I am travelling down one stylistic road. So that's one difference, two differences. First, it was the backing tracks. Second, it's doing different genres within the same album, whereas I'd be more inclined to stick with one thing for each album and have each album be a different direction. I hope I'm saying it makes sense. I'm starting to trip myself up. Next, they are four great friends, the four best friends that anyone could have been in a band together since they were 13. There was a part of me that wanted to live that story as well. I've mentioned before on this podcast how I was in a band called 60 when I was a teenager. It was my first entry to making music with other people, being in a band and all that. And from back then, I was already accruing material that would become what I'm doing now. And I would have loved to be in a band with friends from the start because, you know, the chief band that I'm a fan of is The Strokes and they have a similar story. Five friends who got together in their teens and conquered the world together. The 1975, four friends who got together in their teens and conquered the world together. I'd love to do that. But I have come to realise that my vision is largely mine alone, at least at the start. It's very much born of how much time I've spent by myself. I've got some great friends playing with me. I am well aware that they have their own lives going on. And I wouldn't be surprised if at some point in the future, we aren't playing live together anymore. But I have come to the conclusion that my vision lies within me. And as long as I am pursuing it, I can bring people together. It might even sound a bit mercenary, but I am happy to go that route if necessary. Because I'm the one who sits with the vision. It's just too tattooed to my heart now. I wouldn't be willing to collaborate and... What is the word? When Compromise. That's the word I'm looking for. Sorry for the slight fist slam there. I didn't mean to sound so melodramatic. I'm just too entangled with the vision. So they have backing tracks. I wouldn't. They go in different genres within one piece of work. Each work for me would be would follow one road, but there'd be different roads with each different piece of work. They've been four best friends since they were 13 and been playing together the whole time. My stuff is a lot more solitary. They when you, they are the type of band to, if you saw the four of them at a bus stop, in queue at the post office, at a football match, on the beach, you would think they look like they are in a band. They should be in a band. They very much fit the stereotype, the archetypes of what a band is particularly a British band, four four white men from the northern part of England who are heavily inspired by black American music and essentially make pop music with guitars. They're all tall and skinny, great heads of hair, leather jackets, tattoos. Just when you think rock band, the image that comes in your mind, the 1975 very much fit that. 
I don't fit that. And that's very much been an obstacle that stopped me from wanting to pursue what I want to do. It's an irrational thing to think, but it was where my mind was. Just, oh, I know what people expect. I know what a band is supposed to look like or how they're supposed to present. And I don't do that, so I don't know if I can, etc., etc. I've since decided to lean into the fact that I don't fit that mould. But at a glance, the 1975 do. However... They also seem very interested in messing with that mould. Yes, we present as one way, but our music will go in many very different directions to almost throw you off. You're all looking left, so we're going to go right. And that's another thing I very much appreciate with them and something I would take in what I want to do as well. So, they're backing tracks, different genres, four best friends. They fit and in ways don't fit the band mould. And the biggest difference is Matty, who is the singer in the band. And, I don't know, maybe the mascot, the flag bearer, he's the focal point of the band. And he is a real capital F frontman. There aren't many other frontmen of newer bands I can think of who are on his level in how he presents himself. He's got a somewhat effeminate presentation. Where am I going with these words? Yeah, no, he just feels very, almost uh, like a puppet on a string, like on stage. Very flexible, very floppy, very in thrall of the art and the emotion of all that he's presenting. He's very verbose and articulate in interviews, very opinionated, and understandably so. This, I'd, I'd wager he's the main focal point of a lot of the devotion that goes towards this band. The music, of course, is what ultimately keeps people interested in the band but I think people feel as I on some level do as well feel invested in Matty personally he the 1975 I think in the early days Harry Styles from One Direction said he was a fan and One Direction I don't even need to explain to you who they are you know who One Direction are they are maybe they were they're on hiatus but at a time they were the biggest boy band in the world So for Harry Styles to say he's a fan of the 1975 is and was a big deal. The 1975 also supported the Rolling Stones at one of their gigs. And Harry, uh, not Harry, pardon me, Matty has said that, you know, he has spoken to Mick Jagger personally and would consider him a friend. Maybe they're not hanging out all the time, but, you know, they recognize Mick Jagger is aware of and recognizes uh, Matty and getting Harry and Matty mixed up now. Matty feels as though he fits into the lexicon of rock music, even though the band themselves would say, you shouldn't really call us a rock band, we're a pop band. They say you can call us a guitar band in as much as you could call us a microphone band because they're just instruments and tools that we use. But Matty very much fits into the lineage of what it is to be a frontman of a band. And again, I very much felt that I don't fit that lineage. But I've now arrived at a point where I lean into the fact that I don't fit into that lineage. Matty is someone who can change up his look for each campaign that the band is on. At the start, he had long hair with shaved sides. For the second album, like, I think for the second album, he had even longer hair. Third album, he cut it short. First album was black and white. Second album, it was very neon third album I think it still was pretty neon but I don't know I'm kind of losing my words here but basically 
whilst they Mighty comes across as a much more versatile character, I'm much more stuck in one place. Hence the the white shirt for a start. Instead of uh, I don't really know the words I'm trying to the point I'm trying to get across here. I just feel there's a fundamental difference in how Matty can bring himself across and how I bring myself across. But perhaps the best way to illustrate that would be for me to really put in some work in getting out there and then I'll let other people draw their own conclusions. If I was ever compared to the 1975, I'd consider that a massive compliment because if you take nothing else away from this episode, it's that I have a large amount of respect and admiration for this band. They've put in the work They've shown the commitment, they have the ambition, they have the innovation, the imagination, and they just feel like a band who is worth your time and, and your, your interest, your attention, especially in this age when there is so much competition for your attention. There aren't many bands I would put on the same level as this band. I've mentioned that the Strokes are my favourite band. On some level, I feel as if the 1975 are the closest inheritors of whatever attention or hype existed around the Strokes in their earlier days. There isn't much that connects the two stylistically. They're both very much doing different things. But they just both feel like bands who you might have heard of, but who are worthy of actually going and listening to. Because with both bands... There might be elements of privilege in their background. There's elements of a backlash against them. But there wouldn't be this much attention to the 1975. If the music wasn't good, there's only so much having a bit of a more privileged background can get you. There's only so much that hype or talk or bluster can get you. Ultimately, the music has to be good. And with the 1975, that's very much the case. Yeah, I, I'm i a big fan. I'd recommend checking them out. They're not for everyone, but I think if you give them a try, which is a slight quote from one of their recent song titles, whether you like the music or not is neither here nor there. Taste is very subjective. One man's trash is another man's treasure, etc. But I would imagine it's hard to come away from them and not at least respect what it is they're going for and the extent to which they're going for it. And with that, I shall end my episode about the 1975. I hope there's been something of interest in amongst all that I've said here. They've got a new album coming out next year, I think, maybe February. If not the album, they're definitely playing the O2 again in February. And if you get a chance, I'd recommend going and checking out that show and seeing for yourself what I'm talking about. Or checking out some of their interviews, some of their music videos. Somebody Else in particular is a fantastic music video, which just shows how good they are at articulating what they're about and just executing their vision to such a fine degree. Once again, there is a show this Sunday on the... Let me go back to my very professional notes. Sunday the 13th of October at the Stag's Head in Hoxton. Kin Soul, Rose White and Jack, Haley Solace and Johanna are all playing. I will be there. I just might be on stage as well. £5 entry, doors open at 6 o'clock. Come and join us and come and check out some of the great talent I've been talking about on this podcast. Thank you all very much for listening. You can find me online at Saddest Night Out, all as one word, and most social media. You can email me, saddestnightout at gmail.com. Otherwise, I will catch you on the next episode. Take care.